And then the icing on the cake was that you came along. And I thought to myself, he's doing a better job at what I used to do than I even did back then. But he's certainly doing a better job than I can do now. So I decided to pass the baton and I told you, you were going to do great with the podcast and that your passion and your insight and your creativity was going to bear great fruit in helping people who were maybe just a year or two or maybe a decade behind you on the very same road and were trying to wander out of the wilderness, so to say. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Wish you on a pot on go with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Uh, wishing I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other same most beat number checks. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So much we're high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James Brown, love we go ahead and dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got a hands up ready for a box. Undisputed Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 112. And it's also a very special day because it's the two year anniversary of the show. So, two years ago today, uh, the day that this episode drops, uh, we kicked off episode number one. And who would have thought? That two years later, 112 episodes later, uh, that we would be having more fruitful conversations. I'm having a blast. You know, like when we started this, I don't know. I thought maybe, uh, I thought maybe we'd go for six months, maybe a, a year max. But I figured, you know what? I'll probably get into something else, or maybe I want to do something else, or maybe I'll have another idea. I don't know. Maybe I don't. I, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like it was going to stick around for a long time, but here I am two years later and I'm having a blast. Like I feel like something inside of me that has been buried in there for a long time has been unearthed. I've tapped into it and it's like a geyser, like a volcano. It is just erupting and uh, I'm having fun. I have no intentions of stopping. Uh, I've got conversations lined up. I have ideas brewing. Uh, I'm I'm having a blast, and uh, so I wanted to kick it off, and I wanted to say, first of all, thank you. Uh, number one, thank you to our listeners. So you guys tune in like every week, and I was thinking about this today. You tune in every week, and you invite me into your car with you on the way to work. Uh, some of you, when you're mowing the lawn, you listen to the podcast. When you're having breakfast uh, over your morning coffee. I know people who listen to this thing while they're having dinner with their family. Uh, you invite me and our guest into all of those places to talk about things that matter. And uh, I don't take that lightly. Like, thank you so much for tuning in every week. Thank you for listening, sharing the episodes, uh, going on the iTunes, leaving comments, doing all the things. Thank you. Uh, myself and on behalf of my family, thank you. Thank you for the love, for the encouragement, and uh, for believing in this wild and crazy thing that we are doing here at the What If What If Project. So thank you to our listeners. 
Thank you to our patrons. Uh, Patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show. And we have 27 people who have signed up. Thank you. Like, I know how hard it is to decide to what things you're going to give your money to every month. Like, I even know there's months where you, you go to Starbucks, you're like, can I really afford to get this cup of coffee? Like, I get that times are tight. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We've got murder hornets. We've got all sorts of crazy things going on in 2020. And so I know that it's hard to decide what you're going to give your money to. But uh, thank you uh, to those 27 people who have decided to give money every single month to the show. Uh, That does not go unappreciated. That does not go unnoticed. Uh, Again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for believing in me, for believing in the show, for believing in what we're doing um, here on on the podcast. So, so thank you, and thank you to those people who reach out uh, on occasion through email, Facebook Messenger, direct message on Instagram, Twitter. I can't tell you how many times over the last two years I've been ready to like throw in the towel uh, because of just it's hard. Like when you get on here and you talk about stuff like we talk about, it takes some heat. Uh, people get upset. Uh, I've had difficult conversations with uh, people from my past, from church, from school, both students, professors, some family members, just really difficult things. There's been moments where like, I've been ready to just close this computer, take my microphone, go throw it in the garbage can outside and, and just be done with it. And uh, right when I'm about to, to make do something drastic, it's it's always like an email comes through a message, a text. Uh, Somebody says, thank you. I just listened to this episode. It really hit me hard. I really needed to hear this. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Please don't stop. And it's in those moments that I remember, like, yes, you know, this this is why we do this. Uh, This is why we do this. So so thank you because those those comments, those emails, those times you've reached out have in many times just propelled me forward. So so thank you. And thank you to my family. Thank you to my wife. Uh, my wife has been a huge supporter of what we're doing here. Uh, without her, I, I, I could never do this without her support. Uh, so, so thank you to my wife, Dana. Uh, my daughter, Jordan, she's made an appearance on the podcast before uh, for our Patreon supporters. Uh, she did an intro with me, one of these kind of things where we sit down before the episode and we talk. Uh, that was a lot of fun, but I'll bring her on for uh, for another another episode. But, you know, even Jordan, she's three, but she knows like when daddy has his podcast and she knows that we can't be screaming upstairs, even though in this episode she did scream that you're about to hear, uh, or she was talking very loudly at, at a couple of points, but uh, it's quarantine days, right? So we're doing the best that we can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, she's been, you know, even when I tell her, like, I got to do, I got to do, daddy's got to record a podcast today, like her eyes light up. And uh, sometimes she'll go get her little computer that she has and she'll be doing her podcast in the other room. And uh, it's just fun to be able to share this with her, um, even at, at such a young age. So, so thank you to her. Thank you to my parents. Uh, my, my mom is somebody who has always supported my wild dreams, whether I wanted to be a pastor, plant a church, whatever. And uh, she's constantly sending me books. Uh, she'll ask me to make an Amazon list of books I need for the, 
the podcast, different people who are coming on the show, and she'll go look them up, find their books. Every once in a while, a box of anywhere from three to 10 or 15 books will show up in the mail. And that's just her way of of saying that she believes in me and she believes in what we're doing here on the show. So so thank you to my mom and to my dad. Uh, so all that to say, uh, now that the sappy stuff is out of the way, uh, we're going to roll into an episode with Bo Sanders. So if you don't know who Bo is, uh, you got to go in the show notes, click the links, find this guy, read his stuff, listen to his stuff, uh, doing great things in the world. But Bo is a professor of mine in, in seminary, and uh, he was a professor for an elective that I took. And him and I really hit it off. We ended up doing a directed study together where it was just him, the professor, me, the student, one-on-one, uh, with me soaking up all of his wisdom and knowledge. Uh, I pitched to him the idea for this podcast. He told me to go for it. And uh, he's, been a, he's been a friend, and he's been a mentor to me. And uh, he's somebody whose voice uh, is really, really important in, in my life. So I'm excited to share this with you. And uh, you'll notice the episode's a little bit longer uh, because at the end, since it's the two-year anniversary, I figure I can talk as long as I want to, number one. I think I've earned it. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the episode, I want to give you a little bit of commentary on some of my thoughts about the episode. And I want to share with you a story that I wanted to share in the episode, but I chickened out. And so so don't go forward and listen to the end. You, you've got to listen to the conversation for the end to make sense. Uh, so yeah, so just stick around. You're going to hear me and Bo talk. You hear a little segment of music. Then it's about 20 minutes of me sharing some stuff. A, a peek behind the curtain, if you will. Uh, a little bit of me being vulnerable with you about about some stuff. So uh, special music today is from my friend Young Citizen, Y-U-N-G, Young Citizen. He's a hip-hop artist here in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's doing great things in the world and uh, great things in our city. And uh, he's one of the most encouraging people that I know. And so he he he, he, he has mastered his craft. Uh, he's He pours all of his passion, all of his heart into what he does. And he also pours that same passion, that same heart into his friends and to the people in his life. And he's always reaching out to me to encourage me with what we're doing here. So I'm grateful for him. He's got some new music out that I'm going to showcase for you in this episode. So go to Apple Music, Spotify, all the places, download it, share it, uh, pass it around, Young Citizen. Uh, Next week, we'll be talking to Thomas Ord about his new book, uh, God Can't, Questions and Answers. And then the following week, We kick off our fall series, To Hell with Hell. Uh, And we're going to kick it off with the one and the only N.T. Wright. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that series. It's going to run through September and October, probably into the first week of November. Uh, It's going to be an eight-part series. So I am excited. I'm itching to get that that rolling. So anyways, all of that to say, uh, this is episode number 112. It's the two-year anniversary episode, and it's my conversation with my friend, my mentor, the man, the myth, the legend, Bo Sanders. Enjoy. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my one and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. 
free. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my want and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to receive. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Look, sometimes it doesn't hurt to be selfish. No, I got a big heart, I like to be helpful. Some people take it for granted, it goes for all levels. No, I might sound crazy, it can be trouble. Got a clip, you think you got the keys. On the voyage, always searching, I feel at the knees. Nothing but to go above and I can go beneath. I've been through the highs and lows of things you can't believe. So many folk are independent, you know that's a given. Hey friends, uh, you have picked a good day to drop by. Uh, first of all, it's the two-year anniversary of the podcast. So two years ago to the very day, uh, we released episode one. And we have both made some waves and some uh, new friends along the way. But today I want to introduce you to my friend, uh, a mentor in my life, the one who helped me get the courage to get this thing off the ground. Bo Sanders, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It is good to be here. And congratulations. That is no small anniversary. Thank you. Confetti shoots out of people's phones all over the world yes. at this moment. <laughs> if only we could do that. Maybe someday. It's a labor of love, podcasting. It is. It is. Uh, I thought it was going to be easier than it is, but I'm finding that it's actually a lot of work. But it's like you said, it's work that I enjoy doing. It's yeah. Labor of love. This is yeah. This is my twelfth year of podcasting, and um, it, it's just it is an endeavor. You you really have to believe in the conversation that you're hosting or facilitating mm. or trying to initiate because it it costs you. Yes. It costs you a lot of things, time, energy, some relationships, depending on what you're talking about. So you and I uh, met in a class and you have to excuse my daughter in the background. It's quarantine days, as we say. So oh. she might scream. We have two new dogs as well. They might bark. Whoa. Um, yes, we, have a, house. we have a lot of things going on in the secret house and we have a cat that's very upset with the dog. So who knows what's going to wow. happen. But uh, you and I, we met in a class uh, that you were co-teaching with mm -hmm. your dad back at Alliance right. Theological Seminary yeah. <laughs> during my yeah. last class that I had to take uh, to complete the coursework for the, the doctoral program. And I've told the story on the podcast before, but now that you're like actually here with me, I need to tell it with you here so I can hear your thoughts uh, to follow. Yeah. So it was a week long intensive class, as you know. And uh, I remember the first day of class, I sat all the way in the back row, as far away from you as I could be. Uh, and admittingly, I wasn't really paying all that much attention. Like, I don't know if senioritis is a thing for doctoral yeah. students, but it, if it is, I totally had it. Uh, I just wanted the class to be over. I was quietly deconstructing a lot of things in my heart, my mind. I didn't feel, to be honest, very safe in that part of my journey in mm. that place. So I was kind of hoping to skate through the class kind of unnoticed, if that makes any sense. So, but then you got up to talk. And uh, you were quoting from uh, what I was told were forbidden books by forbidden people. You weren't always mentioning their names, but I was probably the only one in the room, for instance, who picked up on the trampoline illustration, having roots in like Rob Bell's book, Velvet Elvis, because I had read that many times. And I remember going back to my hotel that night, and I was avoiding some of the invites to go out to dinner. And I just wanted to be alone. I remember laying on my bed thinking to myself, like, I don't know who this guy is or how they let him teach in this seminary, but <laughs> this feels like a divine moment. And like, I need more of both standards in my life because you were, you were talking with confidence and courage about things that uh, were somewhat forbidden in that world. You were pushing us as a class to ask big questions about 
faith and God and the gospels and the Bible and all the things like I was hooked. So for the rest of the class, if you remember, I sat in the front of the room, uh, finally got the courage to talk to you on the side. You encouraged me to go to wild goose. You encouraged me to keep digging. We did a directed study together. Uh, in that last paper I wrote about, uh, the idea for this podcast, you said, go for it. And so three years later, uh, here we are. So I just wanted to kind of kick it off and say, thank you, uh, because I would not be doing what I'm doing today if it were not for you and your voice in my life. So thank you. Oh, wow. That is, I have goosebumps. That is <laughs> amazing to hear. Thank you for honoring me uh, in that story. And, and I just want to acknowledge that I'm so glad you seized the opportunity like you did and took off running because it turns out you can really run. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're built for this and you Thank love you. it and you're doing good in the world. And I'm just so happy to have played any part of that at all. But yeah, let's talk about that class. So here's, here's some funny background. <laughs> yes, give it to me. So uh, my father is the head of the, the doctor of ministry program at the seminary that you went to mm -hmm. at NIAC and uh, Alliance Theological Seminary. And they used to have two preaching courses as part of the doctor of ministry program. But they figured out that a, a majority of those in the doctoral program were not primarily preachers. Yeah. That that's not, so they, they took that second preaching class and they wanted to make it a contemporary communication class. Hmm. And so uh, I wrote up a proposal and I submitted it and it got accepted. Uh, and so I got to be the professor in that class, but uh, I got to co-teach it with my father, which is an amazing opportunity. Hmm. I, I don't know many people who get to do that. Hmm. Um, you know, to just not only follow your dad, into his profession, but then to partner with him yeah. is a big, it was a big, cool thing that I got to do. Sure. But there, that was the upside, sort of the constructive, it was a wonderful atmosphere in the class. But the, the tricky part of that class is that communication in the 21st century is inherently complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and so the content of the class was risky. Yeah. Yep. There was no way around because we live in a world. And if you think about Glenn, what's happened since that class, mm. think about the last four years and just how the intensification and the amplification of whether it's the news, social media, mm. the unrest in the streets, right? The, the climate that we live, it's anytime you're going to try and talk about communication mm. and specifically for us as um, religious types and uh, theologically oriented people. I mean, this is a treacherous time to try and communicate. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. whether you are the one broadcasting or you're the one interpreting on either end of that wavelength there is a lot going on and so to try and address the multiple things going on you know i like to use the so a song analogy because you always have the words and for most people the words get the lion's share of the attention the lyrics of the song that's what they think the song is about 
But I always have to try and convince people, if you didn't have the words to this song, you still have a song. Yeah. So what I like to do is play songs, like whether that's it's Muzak or a jazz version or some cover that doesn't have words. And it's amazing that in that room, people who know the song are familiar with the song, their brain supplies the words. Yeah. But for people who don't know, have never heard that song before, they have an entirely different experience of that song. Yeah. And so like my favorite one is a pops version of uh, Hope It Gives You Hell. Mm. And if people don't know that song, they think, hey, that was a nice, that was a nice light song. But people who are familiar with the song, <laughs> right. <laughs> How, why did you just play that during the offertory? Right. And, um, All American and so, rejects, right? <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> and so uh, this, this is why the opening day of class, my yeah. main topic is the experience of absence and the absence of experience. Mm. So two people can be sitting in the same place doing the same thing at the same time. Let's say that, let's call it a church service and a song comes on. You've never heard the song before. So you are having an absence of experience. You think, oh, I sort of liked that song. That was the song they played at my mom's funeral. So I am experiencing her absence. Mm -hmm. You and I are sitting in the same place, doing the same thing at the same time, having two entirely different experiences. And for every person in that room, that's going to be true. So if you have 50 people in a room, you're gonna have at least 50 different experiences. So how do you communicate in that sort of a world. Hmm. Well, you have to keep track of the registers. Hmm. You have to say, here's the bass and here's the treble, here's the pace, here's the rhythm, here's right the melody, here's the harmony. You have to, as a communicator, be tracking the different registers because there is more going on at all times than you can possibly control. So this is just being an attentive person. Yeah. And saying, what are the registers? And then attending to them. Hmm. And that's all, I mean, that was all the more true in that particular class. I can imagine for you as a professor, like you were standing up there talking about um, all of these, these concepts that to a lot of people really push up against some boundaries, but you have people from all different, all different things going on in their world. I mean, you have people from different parts of the world. You have people from different... Mm -hmm different age groups. You have people doing different things in the church. Some people not in the church, you know, you have so many different things. So, so many different people receiving what you're saying in different ways. Well, this is why I love uh, Paul Ricoeur. One of his concepts is called the surplus of meaning. Yeah. And I wanted and to touch said, on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So in any symbol, yeah. any symbol at all, but specifically ones that are rich. So mm. let's say G O D just those three letters hmm. in, that, in that order, in that sequence. In any symbol like G-O-D, you have more going on than you could possibly explain or hmm. contain, yeah. right? Yeah. And, there is, and that's on purpose and that's a good thing. Hmm. So at the communion table, you know, I know six different versions, interpretations of what's happening at the communion table. Hmm. So you can have eight, people taking communion together and they're having at least six different experiences yeah. right? Yeah. theologically spiritually 
Yeah. So, but that's a good thing that symbols are so full and rich in their meanings yeah. that there's a multiplicity of possibilities and a, a, a just an array of implications and applications. There is a surplus of meaning. Mm. And, and so when you embrace that, any Bible verse, you know, there are at least four different things going on in any Bible verse that you read. Mm. And so to celebrate that, so instead of trying to, to reduce everything down to one thing, what's, what's, this, what's the one meaning of this verse, yep. right? Yep. It's original interpretation or it's application, right? What, instead of doing that, you, you bless it by breathing life into it like a balloon and expanding it and seeing what's all this can mean mm. or putting a candle inside of a vase and letting right the light shine through i mean there's a there's a beauty about recognizing that communication and symbols whether that's visual or digital or verbal yeah. or embodied that there's so much richness and goodness in meaning that you embrace that and say there's actually a surplus of meaning. There's more going on than I can understand, explain, or contain. I think that for me was like one of the huge parts of the class that unlocked a lot for me because again, like, you know, I had experience, I had spent so much time at that in those, in those walls that we were in. I mean, I, I did my master's degree there. Um, I was there for a little bit, like in, even in college days, like I was there doing a couple of things and then in doctoral studies and like in those walls, like I can't tell how many times like in systematic theology classes and, um, you know, different Bible classes that like we were told, like, you know, like you said, you got to get to the one, what is the one meaning of this passage? And so like internally I'm fighting thinking there's, there's gotta be more to it than this. And then when you mm-hmm. talked about this idea of surplus of meaning, I was like, that's it. Like, I'm not crazy. Like there are other people who literally think this kind of stuff. And I remember we went out to lunch one day, I think it was maybe after we talked about that. And I was sitting at a lunch table with like three or four other guys who were talking about this idea and everybody at the table is wrestling with it. And so I remember one guy was like, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around this because like, how can we say that there's, you know, there's multiple meanings to these like what does that mean for our faith and i was like well it means that it's beautiful right because it means that like you and i come from completely different places in the world in terms of our experiences but we can both look at this story of scripture and it can speak to us in different ways i said like if everybody here at this table puts together a sermon about a specific passage we're all going to come away with different things doesn't mean that any one of us is wrong or any one of us is right it just means we have different experiences. Like, doesn't that make sense? Like, but people are like having such a hard time wrapping their mind around it, but I found it so, so freeing. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, um, there's lots of sayings like, you know, Jesus said, if you have ears to hear or eyes to see, right. I, I like to use the, the phrase uh, the same sun that hardens the clay softens the butter. Mm. <laughs> there are certain things and I don't even know what this category is called, mm. but there are certain things to which people naturally fall to one side or the other. They're like yeah. watershed, right? Yeah. Or thresholds. Mm. And it just, it's one of those things that you, sometimes people can roll over and they're inside the house or they're outside <laughs> the house. And, yeah. Or they're, they're on the west side of the hill or they're on the east side of the hill. I mean, there's just certain things that seem to uh, uh, 
push people in one way or another. Yeah. And this, this surplus of meaning, the multiplicity, the plurality, there is just something. And I don't know if it's personality. I don't know if it's ideology. I don't know if it's a timing thing where people are in their journey, but it definitely um, tends to be one of those things. Yeah. You know, there's people, there's people with certain personalities that you either love them or you hate them, right? Yep. I, and, and it's just, <laughs> this is one of those ideas, surplus of meaning that you can either, it opens up horizons to you yeah. or it threatens mm. your very identity. Yeah. And um, it's, a, it's an amazing, it's an amazingly powerful thing. And so, yeah, it's not surprising, but what I have come to learn, you know, I got to teach that class five years, five mm. out of six years. <laughs> I was the last time, right? Or was it maybe the time before the last? Uh, second, had one other one. Yeah, second to last. Yep. So one of the things I have learned through that class, and then it's been reinforced a hundred times since then, is that in my music analogy, mm. the baseline to almost anything, the baseline is control. Yeah. So you can call that power. Yeah. You can call that authority but often it is control. And so one of the things that we really need to be careful of in our moment that we live in is that this reductive idea of reducing everything down to either its lowest common denominator or its simplest explanation or its essence, right? there's many ways to that people address it, but this reductive move from the last 500 years that we have inherited in Western thought and the enlightenment, Mm -hmm. this reductive move, whether it's theological or scientific or whatever it is, uh, even psychological, um, we get so used to our one interpretation. So specifically let's do theological or biblical here. Mm -hmm. We get so used to it, it must be our way, this one way of understanding it. And then anything that threatens that feels out of control. Yeah. Yeah. And so control is the baseline Hmm. that is sort of governing how our song sounds. Hmm. And anything that is counter to that is really, it, it, makes us uneasy. It makes us uncomfortable. Mm. It is a, it feels like a challenge to our control or authority or power that it could be read or understood a different way. And so while we may want to focus on the content, we also have to acknowledge that any theological debate or any spiritual conflict or religious, whatever, you know, it is that there's at least two things going on at the same time. One is the content and the other is a power or a control issue. Mm. So yeah. whether that, whether that's same sex marriage in denominations, whether that's the ordination of women, whether that's um, inspiration of scripture, like it mm. doesn't really matter what the controversial issue is. You have the content, but you also have an underlying wrestling for control. Mm. There's always like a thing beneath the thing. It's not just the content. There's always something more going on than that. Yeah. 
And that's yeah. why on that first day of class, I, I always start with, <laughs> you are always communicating at least two things. Yeah. One, that you mean to, and a second thing that you may not be aware of or in control of. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And I mean, so, that can be tone of voice. Yeah. That can be posture. That can right, be sure. Yeah. I mean, it can be uh, trigger words. It can, there's so many, there's, so you can say what you mean to say, hmm. but there's always a secondary echo that you may not be aware of or in control of. And it's important to know that because sometimes people will come up to you afterwards and say, Hey, I really didn't appreciate that. And you'll hmm. say, oh, oh, that's not what I meant. Hmm. Well, that's, that's how I, right. That's how I experienced that. And you're like, well, that wasn't my intention. Hmm. Well, tough. You're broadcasting on two signals all the time. At least two, right? Yeah. At least two. Yeah. I think in that class you had us make like a list of all the different ways that we communicate other than voice. And I remember people had, we had quite a list by the end of the time going around the room, you know, to your point, I think when, whether you're preaching and you're, you know, have, you're speaking in multiple ways with your voice and other ways that you communicate, whether you're in a conversation, it's just so important to to, to know part of the beauty of podcasting is that it is a reduced bandwidth in, in yeah. a sense yeah it there's only so much you can do with the medium mm -hmm. and so there's actually something beautiful that happens it's like learning to play an instrument right like a saxophone if that's your one instrument you mm -hmm. start becoming proficient and artistic in how you engage your instrument mm. because it's both a limitation and an opportunity for artistry. Yeah. Sometimes with the, I, I and when I emailed you beforehand, I said that we, uh, I only been doing audio uh, for the podcast because video slows down my, my Wi-Fi. but it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of podcasts have video to go along with the audio and there's different yeah. things that you pick up, but I find it interesting when I just see audio, uh, like you said, yeah. it's a very limited, um, very limited bandwidth and it's just different things come across. So, so Bo, tell us about yourself. Um, obviously you, you uh, were a professor. Um, what else do you do? I've <laughs> talked about you a lot on the podcast. So now oh, that you're here, now people can, uh, now they can hear for themselves from, from, from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Who are you? What I do you do? <laughs> tuned in, I actually tuned into an episode about six months ago, just cause I, you know, was interested in the topic or the, the guest right. and I heard you talk a little bit about me and I oh, no. <laughs> it, was, it was really like it was nice but I was like oh wait is he does every he episode is about Bo Sanders <laughs> <laughs> oh no right. um I have had a pretty fun journey even though there have been some terrible twists and turns in it but um I am sort of finding myself not in a midlife crisis, <laughs> but in not in also not a second career crisis. I have come back around uh, to the place. It would look to somebody on the outside very much like I was doing the same thing um, that I was, was doing uh, 27 years ago when I got started. The, only difference is that I walked so far away from it that I have come back 
very different. Hmm. So when I was 18, I was, my father was a professor up at a Canadian Theological Seminary in Saskatchewan, Canada. And I graduated high school there, and then my family moved to Nyack. So I stayed behind in Saskatchewan to play, we call it junior football. It's more like minor league baseball hmm. uh, for a team there called the Rams. And, uh, I, you know, being a preacher's kid, I really, I don't know that I did that well with it. In hindsight, I was really conflicted. Hmm. A lot of the expectations and, uh, you know, just evangelical subculture is interesting in, in and of itself, but also being a pastor's kid is sort of weird too. <laughs> and you put those two things together and then you, you know, I'm the oldest son. So, you know, there's, there's family things there. Uh, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm, you know, as a football player um, and, um, yeah, Bo is somebody that you want on your side in a fight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. It's um, and I'm always very aware of the the physicality mm. of um, especially now. So here's a weird thing. So I, I, you know, growing up evangelical, there were lots of jocks and former jocks, and you know, uh, in in my circles that I ran in, mm. and now I'm over. You know, I work in the main line with United Methodist. And they're more of, you know, if, to use the high school trope of uh, band geeks and uh, theater nerds. <laughs> so I'm always very aware of right. uh, the, the, the physicality <laughs> sure. uh, of just, uh, and, and so how I carry myself and mm -hmm. just trying to be an approachable person and know that I take up a lot of space and that I have a big voice and, but I'm also really expressive. Mm -hmm. So uh, like even listening, sometimes people will stop. They'll, I mean, they'll be talking, right? Giving an address and they'll stop and they'll say, what's wrong? Hmm. I'm like, oh, I just really liked that point. <laughs> it, like, just my resting listening is so animated sometimes, right, right. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so all of that is to say, I did not do great as an evangelical teenager. It was, I had too much testosterone, too much energy. I was too curious about things. I, it just, you know, but I also wanted to be a good kid. So I was very conflicted is what mm. I'm trying to say. Yeah. I had a lot going on. I was of, I was of two minds. I was duplicitous. Right. Uh, the author of James would have not t liked me very much. You were a walking uh, surplus of meaning. <laughs> oh goodness. I had, I was so, I had, I had such a contradictory existence, but then when I was uh, 18, so I was out of high school, um, I got filled with the Holy spirit and called to ministry during a, a church service one night. Mm. Uh, I had gone uh, on a date with a girl who I ended up marrying. So her and I have been married for 27 years. Mm, wow. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So when you are evangelical and you find the person that you love and want to spend the rest of your life with, uh, you get started early because yeah. there are certain things you that are forbidden or at least frowned upon mm. until you're married. So we got yeah. married at 20. But it turned out pretty good. Hmm. We have gotten to travel the world. Um, we have been in ministry almost all of those years. 
It's been a really, really interesting journey for us. Mm. Um, and the big turn came in about 2007. I was a pastor in upstate New York, and I got slapped on the wrist by my denomination for reading uh, N.T. Wright, Len Sweet, mm. and Brian McLaren. Oh, boy. And they said, the perfect storm right there. <laughs> here, they said, let this be the outer reach of your uh, academic, you know, exploration mm. and um, this far and no further. And this really got me thinking like, well, what are they afraid I'm going to find? And up to that point, I really had been a company man. I mean, I, I literally have the denominations logo tattooed on my arm, literally. Mm. And uh, so to, to get a reprimand like that, yeah. I wasn't trying to be rebellious. I just, there was a part of me that noticed pastoring had changed. Yeah. Um, people weren't asking the same kinds of questions anymore. Yeah. So I had been trained as an apologist. I had the Robbie Zacharias, Josh McDowell school of answers yeah. down. It, it, you could ask me about anything. And Evidence I had that an demands a verdict, right? <laughs> Evidence is demands a verdict. Yeah. And then around 2005, I noticed no one was asking me the right questions anymore. Mm. They were asking different questions and I didn't have answers to those questions. And as Brian McLaren says, I liked their questions more than I liked my answers. So I went on a journey and yeah. I ended up uh, going to seminary out in Portland, Oregon at George Fox, because they were doing sort of a postmodern thing. And, and that sounded interesting at the time. <laughs> and then I got uh, involved in the emergent village conversation. Yeah. So I decided to go on. And I really liked theology. So I decided to do a PhD in practical theology yeah. uh, because of I have a pastoral heart and a real theological curiosity. So I ended up down in Los Angeles going to Claremont. Uh, I met my good friend at the time, Trip Fuller, and uh, we joined forces on homebrewed Christianity. Hmm. And uh, that got really big for a while. And we had so much fun doing that. Hmm. And then I got the opportunity, you know, I got to start a church down there called The Loft LA. And it was just a wonderful season of life. Mm. And then I got the opportunity to come back up to Portland and be a professor for a year. Mm. I was the visiting professor of theology at my seminary, George mm. Fox. What an honor. Here's the problem. You can never go home again. Mm. So I came back to the place that had been so important to me, but two big things had changed in the eight years I was gone. It turns out I had changed a lot. <laughs> so even if I had returned to the same place and they were docked at, in the same bay, I would have been different. Yeah. The problem is I did not realize that evangelicalism had changed so much in eight years. So I came back and I really thought that I had done a great job at leaving enough rope in my theological backpack that I could still get out to the boat, I could bridge the gap between the dock and the boat. And I really thought I had left enough rope to do that. Hmm. But I didn't know that they had drifted right. And I had drifted whatever direction you call this. And the gap was uh, pretty big. And so that was a wonderful year of being a professor. In what and, ways, uh, in what ways would you say, give me some specifics of what it looked like 
to drift? Like what was different? For evangelicalism or my dress? Um, like, like, why did you feel like, what did you feel was like, why did you feel that? Why did you feel that there was a shift on their end and a shift on your end and you didn't really meet in the middle anymore? Mm. Like put some so skin on to, that for me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I try not to say years. I, I'm trying to get away from saying years. Sure. Uh, so like I've already said like 2007 and 2005, people started asking different questions and yeah. I, I don't like when I do that, but, but this one's important in that the year was 2016. It was an election year in the United States. Mm, yep. And there was something going on in evangelicalism and mm-hmm. maybe even white evangelicalism specifically, but no, not exclusively. And there was a real soul searching, I think from a loss of identity Mm. Places like Fuller Seminary were struggling financially. Actually, a lot of seminaries were struggling financially. Um, there was a political alignment with the Republican Party that had gotten mm. a little wonky. Yeah. Um, same-sex marriage had become legalized in the mm. U.S., but clergy were not permitted by their denominations to do that. Most of them didn't want to do it, but even the ones who did. So there started to be denominational splits. And you know it's bad when even the Quakers, (laughs) I mean, that's not something Quakers do. The the Northwest uh, yearly gathering of friends split that year. Mm. So there there was just a lot going on, but there was also some weird things that I never anticipated. For instance, even denominations that had maybe been founded by women or that women had played important roles in in the past Mm. were actually going backwards and were no longer ordaining women. And um, so like I I had in the past worked for the free Methodist. And so the church that I worked in was actually planted over a hundred years ago by two women. Mm. And, but then when I served there, women weren't even allowed to serve communion. So like, it's just little things like that. Not that that's little, but, Right, There's sure. hundred little things like that that um, signal to you that it's not just that these lines we're drawing in the sand are increasing. We're drawing more and more lines in the sand. It's that there are going to be consequences if you cross them. Mm. So you notice it in little things like when you're talking with your colleagues and there's a spot in the conversation where they would naturally respond and say, Oh, interesting. Cause in my field, it's like this, or, you know, d- depending on my discipline, here's how we address that. Mm. And they would just not say anything at all. Silence. Yeah. Yeah. And then you'd say, what's going on? And they're like, I can't really talk about this here. Mm. You're like, what's happening right now? So you just, there's a, there's a hundred little signals like that where you just start thinking, I don't, it doesn't feel safe. Mm. And I mean, I could give you a, yeah, we could talk about this whole day. <laughs> we could. It's, little things, it's yep. little things like, it's not just the words you say, it's mm. also the words you don't say. Mm. So, like I never use the phrase love the Lord. Like that guy really loves the Lord. 
you don't think it's a big deal, except that when you're in a created culture like a seminary, you figure out there's a, there's a something, this is a, not a dog whistle, but there's a signal being sent that that guy, he's, he's one of us. He really loves the Lord. That's like letting you know he gets my stamp of approval. Yeah. And because I didn't use that phrase, you know, like if I was vouching for a student and I was trying to say like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe consider this student for this. But because I didn't endorse them in the same way and I didn't right. say, you know, really love the Lord. So a lot, a lot of little things like that. It's not just in what you say, it's in what isn't said. Mm. And it's in points in the conversation where there would be a natural give and take and that goes dead. And there's just this wet towel of fear or caution. So um, I probably, if you asked me to think about this for a week, I could come up with you come up with more. That's what you got. So you left the, the seminary then you were teaching there. Yeah. My time there came to an end. Yeah. My wife came to me with an interesting proposal and she said, Hey, <laughs> how about instead of what you do for a living, being a professor, being the given and where we live being the variable, what if we put down roots so that I could open a counseling practice mm. and th- where we live is the given and what you do for a living is the variable. And I thought that was a really good idea because it turns out being a professor is a lot different than it was 10 years ago. Sure, when I sure. First got the idea. And a lot of what you do now is not just online, but you sort of monitor chat rooms and mm-hmm. you um, facilitate. It wasn't exactly what, I mean, it, it's a long way from Dead Poet Society, sort <laughs> of, the idea of standing up in front of a class and inspiring right. great thought. Yeah. And now you really, um, you're almost a, a computer admin at points. Sure. So it, being a professor was a lot different than I had expected. And I can only imagine what it's like now with uh, distance learning. And yeah, learning. for sure. So there was something about her idea that sounded really pleasant to me. Um, we had moved a lot in our 26 years at the time. And mm-hmm. so I said, yeah, let's try it. So we decided we were going to stay in Portland even when my contract to be a professor came to an end. Mm. And I, I'd had a really fun situation happen at the time. It was devastating, but it ended up being sort of a opening up a really great Avenue for me. Mm. My mom got really sick and died about five years before this story. I had to take a year out of my PhD. And when I came back to try and restart it, one of my main professors had switched to Hofstra university Mm. and I could no longer write my cognate field with him. So instead of writing on globalization, which is what I had studied, I had to write on I global Methodism (laughs) and because I had grown up free Methodist and I was working at a United Methodist Mm. church at the time. And I was going to United Methodist school. uh, Jack Jackson was very kind and took me on, even though I had not studied with him and let me write one of my qualifying exams in a, in my cognitive field of global Methodism. And um, it was very kind of him to do that. And it took me an extra year of study and to do the literature review. 
But it turns out I became somewhat of an expert on Methodism. Who would have thought? But yeah, so when we decided <laughs> to put down roots in Portland, Oregon, I called my Methodist friends and said, I think I'm interested in being a Methodist pastor. Oh, man. Yep. And, um, <laughs> I, and so I said, I'm really interested in bringing a church back from the dead. I've started three churches. I've pastored healthy congregations, but I've never tried to revive. <laughs> Let's resurrect one. <laughs> right. And they said, do we have some situations for you? <laughs> and so by, I'm going to call it the divine leading. I found my way into the most beautiful little gem of a congregation. Mm. I adore these people in this place so much. I came in, I made them a proposal to change our entire way of doing ministry and our ecclesiology, our entire view of the church, and to make it entirely conversational and interactive. They gave me permission to do it. I literally drove to the pawn shop my first week here and bought an $18 Sawzall. I chopped up the pew, all of the pews into little pieces. I ripped out all the carpet. We brought in brand new carpet tiles. We made it a coffee shop feel. We sit in the round. We sit Mm -hmm. in a circle. I preach from the middle and facilitate conversations. And I turned the old pews into coffee tables that people gather around into, into a communion table that we take communion at. It has been so fun. We call it interactive church or church 2.0. If people are interested, they can just Google it. It's on uh, both Vermont Hills UMC website and also, which is my church in Portland and also uh, bosanders.wordpress.com. If you just Google Bo Sanders interactive church or church 2.0, there's an entire page. I've made five videos explaining how we do it. Mm. And it is honestly, I could never ever go back to being a spectator at a religious spectacle. Yeah. Once you've done interactive church, I mean, honestly, it's like, it's better than coffee. It makes me, the cells (laughs) of my body buzz because at normal church, we call it church 1.0, where everyone's facing the same direction and and all, everything on the stage is either pre-rehearsed or right scheduled. There's nothing dynamic, nothing spontaneous. You are a spectator. And what I hate the most is that while it's important that people come, it doesn't matter who those people are. Yeah. At Interactive Church, it really matters who's in the room. Mm. Because if you have black and white, gay and straight, divorced, single, parents, widowed, retired, right, uh, empty nesters, you are going to have a very different conversation yeah de- depending on who's in the room yeah and i've seen you you so, have you you have a lot of your stuff is online and so it's i've watched you do your thing on sundays and i've seen like it's very different at first like at first like i had never seen anything like that before and so mm-hmm. to hear you talking and having almost like a conversation with people and people mm-hmm chiming in and, and like we talked about like a surplus of meaning like different people have different viewpoints and it's just fascinating to watch and to call that church was such a foreign idea for me at first but now it just seems like so much more natural and, and by the way i hate quarantine i might hate quarantine <laughs> the most of anyone i know 
it definitely cramps your style. <laughs> oh man. And it, <laughs> I mean, it, it is literally, it is a challenge to my very view of the church. It is a, it is a crippling to my vocation. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is really challenging, but one of the things I'm excited about is um, we're going to embrace it. Mm. And this fall, we're actually going to prioritize the online experience to encourage people to stay home. Tell me more, we're tell me more. Make it, yeah, we're gonna try and make it so that, that you have a better experience watching from your living room than if you were on, on site. Okay, can you give us a, uh, like a sneak peek of what that, like what goes into that? Oh, so the little things, like when we, whenever this, we do get back to meeting in person again. So I bought this rolling desk, it's a standing desk, mm-hmm. and I am going to preach right with the computer in front of me to the camera. So we're going to prioritize right with line of sight, those who are watching from home. Okay. And then like when it's time for say a song, we will wheel that over to the piano. Hmm. So you actually will get a better experience watching from home right? The transitions yeah, yeah, yeah. The elements of our gathering. Yeah. But here's where it's going to get fun. When it's time for the conversation, the person who is wheeling the desk around so that you get the best view is going to turn the desk and they're going to sit down in front of you and they're going to be your conversation partner. Huh. And so the person who's there is going to get to like, we're going to prioritize the online experience so that it doesn't feel secondary. It doesn't feel like an afterthought so that you're not, the camera's not off to the side or in the back of the room or that you just have to listen to the murmur of conversation groups, but you don't have anybody to talk to. We're going to make it, we're going to try and make it so that the, the, the way we're going to do it, it's really easy is we're going to design the worship gathering for online and then ask, okay, and what about those of us who are in the room? I like that. That's really that's a really good idea because I mean, there's just a lot of people. I mean, even when when even when things go back to you know normal, yep. whatever that looks like, yep. like there's just people who, you know, you know, they're just never going to go to a church, you know. But I yep. think people, those people, when they when they tune into a church service, to your point, they feel like they're just secondary. Like there's so many times where I watch something online, I'm like, what's going on over there in the like, what is this person? Like, what are they? What are they pointing to? Like, it's just like I'm just like a afterthought, the guy behind yeah. the screen. Like you're watching a security camera. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact way to put it. <laughs> I think it's a really cool idea to like make it to try to like almost like turn the church service inside out, so that the person behind the screen is the 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 number one person that you're focused on. Yeah, that's what I like we're gonna that. try. I like that. So we're, 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 we're running low on time and I have so many oh, questions, no. but, but I want to ask you one thing. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Sure. You, you told us your story, um, yeah. professor, now you're, you're pastoring. Yeah. Uh, you, you got well, I'm an author too, by the way. You're, you're an author. That's right. You, you just, I you wrote a book with a book. my mentor and friend, Randy Woodley. That's it. Called decolonizing evangelicalism and uh randy and i have a podcast called piecing it all together p-e-a-c so people can tune in there yeah i'm gonna put all the links out in the show notes and we're gonna have you back on again to talk about the book because we have questions about that too um but yeah so you you're an author pastor you got a sawzall chopped up your pews (laughs) (laughs) that's right and you also released a video 
uh, like a, a year, was it maybe a year, two years ago, oh, yeah. uh, retiring from evangelism. Yeah. And I think that the, the kind of the content of that video, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. But I think if you tell us the story about that video and maybe what brought you yeah. to make that video, I think it's going to touch a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. So uh, take right. us behind the scenes of this video and you can go a little bit longer. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. First of all, I want to thank you for getting the title right. You know, no one gets the title right. Uh, <laughs> what do they say? They, they say uh, evangelicalism, not yeah. evangelism. Yep. Two entirely different things. So thank you for getting that right. That, honestly, I did that my research. <laughs> and I've well, listened to it a few times. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating to me that I said evangelism, but what people heard was evangelicalism. Yes, so that, heard something very different. You know, bring it full circle. Yep. So here's what happened in that video. <clears throat> When I left my church in upstate New York in 2008 to go to seminary, hmm. I started a podcast and a blog, uh, Everyday Theology back then, and uh, then it continued on to homebrew Christianity and, and, and then on to piecing it all together, where I was perpetually trying to be uh, a guide, a hmm. translator for people who believed presently what I used to believe in, in my past. And so I wanted to be uh, somebody who helped people who were curious about asking bigger questions, about thinking about faith a different way, and who maybe wanted off what I call the party barge, the carnival cruise line of evangelicalism. And uh, I, so I followed behind in this little tiny rescue boat, uh, <laughs> just picking out people who had jumped overboard and were done with the big Carnival Cruise line of evangelicalism, the party barge. Yep. Well, after 10 years of doing that, I started to notice I was increasingly ineffective hmm. because of this gap I had mentioned. And that Christmas, two interesting things happened. We were back in Montana with my wife's family, and they were asking about my, this new faith I have, this different way of doing faith. And they literally just couldn't hear what I was saying. Mm. Um, the idea of foundationals, foundations is so important to many evangelical or conservative Christians that for me to be post-foundational what was, I mean, it literally didn't make sense. It sounded like, you know, I might as well have been trying to explain Dungeons and Dragons or how, <laughs> how spells work or something, you know, lycanthropy or something, you know, it just, it didn't make any sense. They literally could not hear what I was saying. Mm. Well, that same Christmas, I found out that I would no longer be teaching the class that I taught that you were in. Yeah. Yep. Well, that meant that I wasn't going to be a professor at Portland Seminary and I wasn't going to be a professor at Alliance Theological Seminary. I'm no longer a pastor in the evangelical church and I no longer had a platform on social media or podcasting that reached that crowd anyway. Mm. And then the icing on the cake was that you came along. And I thought to myself, he's doing a better job at what I used to do than I even did back then, but he's certainly doing a better job than I can do now. Hmm. So I decided to pass the baton 
And I told you, you were going to do great with the podcast and that your passion and your insight and your creativity was going to bear great fruit in helping people mm-hmm. who were maybe just a year or two or maybe a decade behind you on the very same road. Mm. And they were trying to wander out of the wilderness, so mm. to say, but that I was no longer going to spend my time and energy trying to convince people to think a different way. Yeah. I figured out that my brain at 46 at the time was exploding with ideas and I wanted to put more energy into big, constructive, creative ideas and then just let those who are curious find me. Yeah. But that I needed to stop wandering into the village and t- trying to talk people into going on a journey with me. Yeah. They're village dwellers and they're happy until they're not. But at what point they become curious and want to wander out with me, that's fine. But I was just not bearing the fruit I wanted to bear by wandering into the village and trying to talk villagers into wandering out with me. Yeah. Uh, it's, to leave it's their exhausting. Yeah. It is. Well, it is. Yeah. 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 And which I'm willing to do mm-hmm. if I'm effective. Sure. But I was increasingly not effective. So sure. what I did is I, I, re- I retired from evangelism. I just said, I'm not going to try and convince anyone of my views anymore. Mm. I'm not going to try and change anybody's mind. Mm. And I retired from evangelism and uh, took about a year to put all my best brain power into constructive, innovative theology for the 21st century. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when when you're thinking that way for a long time, I imagine it's difficult to come out of that. Yeah. And it took about a year, but I got to say in the last two months, I have rounded some kind of corner and I have come into some kind of new season where I have a voice and people can hear the song I'm singing and it is resonating with the moment that we find ourselves in with uh, our political animosity, Black Lives Matter police brutality, this conversation that we're having about sexuality, uh, the role that religion plays, and our finances within consumer capitalism. I have just rounded some into some beautiful oasis. So I don't know how long the season will last, but man, is this fun right now. It is. And uh, just watching you online, I can see that you you have found your groove and, uh, and you're doing your thing. So uh, for our listeners, yeah, for our listeners, I'm going to put all of Bo's uh, links in the show notes. And uh, believe me, he's somebody you've got to go and uh, follow, listen to his stuff. He's got so many different videos online. Uh, his messages are on Facebook every week at the church. And uh, he's just doing amazing things. And I have borrowed, I have maybe stolen perhaps your analogy of the cruise ship. Uh, that was kind of the whole <laughs> basis for for yeah. for this podcast. And I think I mentioned it in episode number one all the way back in the beginning. But uh, that's yeah. something that really resonated with me because you talked about that in the class. And yeah. uh, I just saw myself as just put so many words on what I was feeling and such yeah. a great analogy. So yeah. if people want to, starting in September, October, November, I have a fun thing I'm going to be doing called the ABCs of Modified Theology. Okay. It's going to be 13 weeks it's 26 letters of the alphabet. We're going to go through concepts 
uh, about theology for the 21st century, and it's going to be great. So if you go to uh, my blog or you find me on Facebook, um, September, October, November, we're going to do 13 weeks, 26 letters, modified theology. Well, I will probably join in on that. And I'll hey. put the link. Yeah, in the show notes. And we'll maybe we'll get some other listeners on there as well. That'll be a lot of fun. It is going to be really fun. And then we're going to, at the end, we'll put together all of the 26 PDFs and it will become an ebook. Okay. And so people, yep. people who are in the learning cohort will get it for free. Like and then it. everyone else will make it available for like five or nine bucks. And um, it's going to be a wild fall. I like it. Well, I'll look forward to it and uh, look for another invitation from me because I have more questions for you. Or anytime, brother. Cool, man. Well, we'll do this again sometime. Thank you so much for stopping by and uh, thank you again for believing in me. Happy birthday. All right, man. Thank you. The patience paid off, now it's go time. go time. The worries all around me, I'ma get mine. Born in the Queen City, got the four nine. Go to Green Trip, told me where the cosign. So people doubted me, that's close to me, that's their regret. When I make it, I'ma take it, all I do is rest. Remain grinding, self-care, that's when I'm at my best. A little crazy, that's when I'm at a test. Feeling tuned. Yeah, we riding, yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean, uh. I thought I told you got the sauce, yeah. I told you got the sauce. Remember, boy, got the sauce, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we riding. Yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean. Uh, I thought I told you got the sauce, yeah. I told you got the sauce. Remember, boy, got the sauce, yeah. Man, I love me some Bo Sanders, right? Literally, one of my favorite people on earth. And uh, I really can't emphasize to you enough. What an impact uh, he has made on my life uh, and the impact he made in my life when I was in a really, really vulnerable place, uh, questioning so many things and honestly feeling very unsafe to uh, you know, bring my questions anywhere, especially being in the place where I was when I met him um, in seminary. I mentioned it in the conversation, but... When I was in that final year of the doctoral program, uh, my theology and everything I knew to be true about God and faith and the Bible and Jesus and all the things, like the bottom block of the Jenga tower was, was out by that time. And the whole tower that had been carefully built over the previous, what, 30-ish years of my life was swaying heavily in the wind. And uh, that bottom block came out really uh, when my wife and I had a miscarriage a couple of years earlier. And uh, I've told the story in the podcast before, but when the doctor came into the room and gave us the news that the baby that we were so looking forward to was gone, man, like people in our life were saying things like, you know, God has a plan and God needed that baby in heaven more than we needed him or her on earth. And God is sovereign. And one day, well, you'll understand and all sorts of things that I had said a thousand times before to other people, uh, especially when I was a pastor. But, but this time, I, I don't know, like none of it made any sense, you know, like none of the answers or the Bible verses, they were all, they were all unsatisfactory to me. Like they were once satisfactory when it wasn't about me, but now that I was in the middle of the loss, like 
so many questions were swinging around my around my around my head and my brain and my heart. And, and so right there in the hospital room, like I began to ask God questions. Like literally on my way out to go get the car, I was asking God questions like how could you do this? Right? Where are you? Like what is what is wrong with you? How could you have the power to stop this and choose not to? Like what kind of monster are you? Right? None of it made any sense to me. And and then when our daughter was born, more questions came flooding in, like especially things in regards to, you know, original sin and God's wrath and all those things. I remember my daughter was was in the NICU for a little while. I remember going in there and uh, seeing this little tiny baby in an oxygen tank, wondering to myself, how can God look at this baby and see someone who is sinful? Right? I mean, like, we can pretty up the language all we want, but seriously, like, how can someone be so innocent and be declared to be so sinful when she's never done anything wrong? How can anyone believe that this baby is inherently deserving of hell because of something that two imaginary characters named Adam and Eve did that that she's destined for hell unless she comes to believe the right things about Jesus when she gets older? Like It didn't make any sense. And all of a sudden, the, the systematic theology books that I mentioned that I had memorized in, in high school, uh, the book that Bo mentioned uh, in the episode... Uh, what was it called? Evidence that demands a verdict. That was an, like an apologetics book. Like these are books that I had memorized pretty much. They all just felt so wrong and so silly and so inadequate and I don't know. Dare I say, full of full of lies. And so Bo came into my life right on the heels of these events, as I was quietly reading and studying on a somewhat deeper level the people and the the writings and the ideas that I had skimmed over lightly uh, the previous 10 or so years, people like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, Pete Enns, uh, Diana Butler-Bass, and, and others. And, and as I said in the conversation in that class, Bo was quoting from these authors. And something in me just came like undone as I saw someone confidently articulating ideas that in my own mind, I was very scared to embrace because although I had always felt drawn to these things, drawn to these teachings, to these people deep down inside, I was afraid. I was afraid of what the people around me in that room, in that school, in my church, in my family, like, what are these people going to think? And I don't know, I, I guess as I mentioned in the episode, as I was laying in my bed in the hotel room that night after I, I had that first class, I knew something in me said, somehow, some way, this is a divine moment, and I've got to seize this opportunity, no matter what the consequences are. Like, I've got to talk to this man. And so I went to class the next day. I sat in the front of the room, and I got the courage to pull Bo aside um, after class, ask him some questions. I kept it like really vague because I wasn't sure what, what this guy was going to say. I didn't really know him. Uh, but I quickly realized that he wasn't going to shame me for asking questions. He wasn't going to shame me for doubting. He wasn't going to look down on me for insisting that uh, God and faith and, and Christianity had to be more than what I had come to know 
at that time. And uh, then in that final paper I had to write for class, uh, I wrote about the dream of this podcast and I called it the What If Project in that paper. And it was vague and I wasn't really too sure what I wanted to do with it. But something in me felt like excited, like I feel like I can I can make something of this. And uh, Bo and I had some long conversations about it. And uh, he said, he said, dude, you need to run with this. It's like the stuff that you wrote in this paper, it's edgy for a setting like this uh, in the seminary. But this stuff, this is stuff that the world needs to hear. So go get it. And uh, I will support you a thousand percent. And so, yeah, I mean, Bo has been a huge, huge piece of my journey, uh, a real mentor in my life. One of the very few voices, I'm very selective about the voices that I let into my life, uh, but he is one of the very few outside of my family that I let speak into my life whose opinion counts and uh, really, really matters and one that I really, truly value and and care about. So mad props for Bo Sanders. So that being said, that brings me to one other thing that I kind of want to add to the episode, maybe a uh, in the intro, I called it a peek behind the curtain, get a little vulnerable uh, with you. In the episode, you might remember how Bo said that the thing that pushed him into the journey of deconstruction, uh, the evolution of his own faith, was when someone, I believe he said in his de- in his denomination, uh, basically said to let guys like Brian McLaren and N.T. Wright be as far as his reach would Uh, would extend. In other words, like these are people whose ideas are ridiculous and you're not to go any further than, than them. Like they're dangerous, but beyond them is like totally off limits. And so, so like me, that picked at Bo's curiosity and sent him on this journey to see like, what is so scary? What is so dangerous? What is so bad about these people? And uh, he hasn't looked back since. Well, after we got done recording, uh, Bo said to me, he's like, yeah, I'm sorry I spent so much time talking about my journey. I feel like that ate up a lot of our time. And I was like, you don't have to be sorry. Like I would have totally cut you off if you were rambling about nothing. But what you were sharing was super helpful. And uh, so then we talked about it a little bit. And he said that when that person told him to let McLaren and Wright, and I think Leonard Sweet was the other one, be the extent of his reach, he said that was like his what if moment where he was like, wait a minute, like what if these guys, McLaren, Wright, Sweet, what if they're onto something? What if their ideas are valid? And and what if I need to be listening to them? And then he said something to me really interesting. He said, you also, Glenn, have a what if moment because we've talked about it a bunch of times. And I said, yeah, I, I totally do. And I was thinking about sharing it, but I chickened out. And Bo responded uh, with his uh, inquisitive mm, that, that you probably heard in the episode a couple of times. And that made me wonder, like, why? Right? Like, why did I chicken out? And honestly, like, after thinking about it for a little bit, I chickened out because I know who is going to be listening to this episode. You, you see, my what if moment happened at, at school. Uh, in the second year of the doctoral program, and it was during a, a casual conversation with a 
uh, somewhat prominent figure in the school. And I know or I assume that this person, or at least uh, at the very least, people close to this person will likely listen to this episode uh, once they see Bo's name on it. And so my mouth in this conversation with Bo was open to share the story, but my brain like quickly shut it down because voices inside were saying, you can't tell that story. Like, what are they, they going to think? If people listen to it, what are they going to say? They're going to dislike you more than they dislike you now. They'll talk badly about your podcast. They'll degrade your work. All these voices start screaming in my head. And so I just decided not to share the story. But then later that night after I talked to Bo, I said, you know what? Like, Bo has a point. I do have a story to share. And as a matter of fact, I don't really give a crap what anybody thinks about it anyways. And so I'll just keep the names out of the story, add it to the outro of the episode. We'll just tack it on at the end. And so that's what I want to do here. I want to share with you uh, my what if story. And there, there is many, right? It's not like there's just one, but this was a big one that sort of flung the door to deconstruction wide open once and for all and uh, propelled me into this place where, where I'm at almost now, almost four years later since this conversation, this event, this what if moment happened. Uh, but as I mentioned, I was in my, I was in the second year of the doctoral program and I was taking a class on, I think it was church, church leadership, something like that. And much like Bo's class, it was a week long intensive class where we were in class from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day and then had to go back home or back to our hotel or whatever and do an immense amount of reading and writing or something to prepare uh, for the next day. Well, it was during our morning break and uh, I had just gotten like a cup of coffee. Uh, they always had coffee brewing in one of the offices. So I got a cup of coffee and I came back to my seat where a bunch of classmates were interacting with each other. And uh, one of the, uh, we'll just call them higher ups in, in the school. And they're all in the middle of this, this conversation. And so I just kind of nodded and took my seat to get ready for the next part of class. And then this individual looks at me with all of the people standing around him. And he says, hey, Glenn, just so you know, it's okay for you to read Rob Bell but you've got to stop posting so much of his stuff on Facebook because rumors are going to start and people are going to think crazy things about you. Now, had this happened today, <laughs> four years or whatever later, after I found my voice, uh, some of my courage, I probably would have had something beyond snarky to say, which would have probably caused some trouble. But I just sort of laughed very uncomfortably. And he continued. He's like, yeah. Then he went into this long monologue about how, like how lost Rob Bell is and how he once, you know, had the opportunity to challenge Rob to his face on the doctrine of hell. And Rob basically had no idea how to field his questions. And the students around him were laughing and joking about Rob's weak theology. And I don't know, I just sort of sat there feeling in a place where I once felt so safe because I had been in this school. I mean, I did my, I went to college at the college campus, which was down the road. I did my master's degree there for three years. 
And I was in the doctoral program as well. So this place where I once felt so safe, now feeling exposed and kind of belittled and all the more unsafe with the questions and doubts I was already wrestling with. And it was in that moment. Now I'm playing like Monday morning quarterback because I'm looking back on it. But it was in that moment that I, I, I realized I think I maybe am outgrowing this place. And I think maybe my time in this world, not just this school, but like this evangelical world, is maybe coming to a close or is at the very least going to undergo a drastic shift. And so it was on the heels of that conversation about a year later that Bo came into my life. But it was that event, that conversation, it was a huge, huge, huge what-if moment for me, right? Because this person who said these things was someone I had known for at least 15 years. Like I sat under his teaching in many different classes throughout college and seminary. I knew him on a very personal level, but as he stood there belittling Rob Bell and shaming me in front of my classmates. Now, whether it was in jest or not, it's not really the, the point here because it's how it made me feel, right? Like I, I felt very, very small sitting there in that room. But something inside of me whispered, what if he's wrong? What if he's wrong? Like what if this person who I've known for 15 years, his heart is yes in the very best of places, no doubt. I love this man. But what if he's wrong? And what if Rob Bell is right? What if Rob Bell isn't just edgy with his love wins theology, but what if he's actually more orthodox than all of the people in this room put together? And what if all the things I've been told are dangerous really aren't dangerous? And what if I don't have to sit here anymore feeling small and insignificant and afraid? What if I stop peeking through the crack of this deconstruction door? And what if I just fling this sucker wide open, jump inside and trust that someone will be there to catch me? And that's what I did. I went home. Obviously, I had to finish up all my classwork. But like a week, two weeks later, I began to reread some of my Brian McLaren and Rob Bell books. I picked up other books by other authors who were newer to me. But I flung that door open. I jumped in. And a year later, like as sappy as it sounds, Bo, Bo is in there to catch me. And he told me that I was safe with him, uh, that I could talk to him about this stuff. And that we've become very close friends um, ever since. And, and, so, and so I tell you this story to tell you that here I am all these years later. I mean, it's four years later, two years now with the podcast. And I'm still afraid. And that's important for me to say. Because I've been doing this podcast, like I said, for two years. I've been vocally deconstructing things for about three years. And I've been quietly taking this stuff apart for probably about 10 years. I've been kicking this stuff around in my brain. But I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still figuring out how to use this newfound voice, courage, and, and faith of mine. I mean, I wish I could go back and I wish I could tell the story live in the conversation with Bo, but, but I can't because the reality is that when I had the opportunity, my insides literally began to shake. Not because like I have a demon or anything like that, but because I was genuinely afraid of what people from my old 
seminary and church days who will listen to this episode, like, what are they going to think? Uh, there's there's old professors, there's, there's classmates who have made it known to me that they're not really a fan of what we do here. Uh, they've said some pretty hurtful things, uh, which I, you know, this is kind of a side note, but yeah, like I said, this is two-year anniversary, so I can talk as much as I want, but I find it odd when they say hurtful things. Because in the church world that I was in, and in the, in the seminary specifically, there was always a lot of talk about freedom, right? Like a lot of talk about finding your true self, finding your voice. And to be honest, I found my voice at that school in the doctoral program. I wouldn't be where I am right now doing what I'm doing if it were not for that school and the very intense healing that took place within the confines of those walls. But there's a sense in the evangelical world where you're free to be free. You're free to celebrate your voice if and only if you do so within the confines or the boundaries that have been set up for you by the leaders of the church, the denomination, etc. Like Bo was told, you can explore A, B, and C. You're free to do that. But that's as far as you, your reach is free to go. Like everyone was super excited that I found my voice, found my courage. But for a lot of people, that excitement quickly went sour. Once I started to push up against some boundaries and began using my voice uh, to, to voice my questions, to voice my doubts, and to, to give people a, a safe place here in the podcast to do the same. And so, yeah, as much as I don't give a crap what people think, uh, part of me still does. And that shows me or reminds me that this whole deconstruction, reconstruction journey is just that. It's, it's a journey. And so, so please, uh, now I talk to you. Please, listener, friend, I'm telling you all of this to make a bigger point. And that is to be easy on yourself. Like whoever you are listening to this, I don't know where you're at in your journey, but, but take it easy on yourself. You're growing, you're changing, you're learning, you're evolving. Enjoy the ride. And my prayer for you, for myself, is that each experience you have in your life, with your family, at work, whatever it is, every experience would be a learning experience. And that every learning experience would show you or teach you something new about the divine, about God. And your place in the world working with him or her, whatever you want to call it, to make this place a little bit more like heaven and a little bit less like hell. That you can look at yourself in the mirror at the end of every single day and smile as you know that you are loved. You are special. You are needed right here, right now, just the way you are. And if you've made it, if you've made it this far, uh, thank you again. Uh, thank you for, for listening. Uh, next week we enter into year number three of the podcast and, uh, we have a lot more stuff to talk about. And like I said, I sense that we're just maybe getting started. So, so buckle up. Thank you for being you. And now much love to you, my friends. Peace. 
can feel Searching for a deal on my last meal Crack the seal, so much I can take Gotta take a kneel, constant battle Got so many wounds, hope they start to heal It's getting real, it's getting real, yeah Seems like I'm a crab in a bucket It'll take a while before I catch one buffer uh, Feeling like I'm living robotic Once I get the chance, I'm a living iconic Always catch me on my high, ain't gon' never see me low. High above the cloudy skies, yeah, I'm focused on this growth. Nothing up to involve, ain't gon' never see me fall. Oh, my brother, get out soon, and this yeah. world is getting cold. Cutting head, taking college courses, all he see is gold. We'll call him up, tell a different stories, praying for his soul. Mama stay paying on his books, now he on the road. She not getting younger, always worry, putting on a toe. Told a concert, no one always gotta keep it lifted though. It's getting harder, harder for myself, life is getting slow. In the rush, always on the grind, ain't no tippy toe. Receiving blessings, lift my hands to God, let me get some more. Feel refreshed, like a grand open, now I'm on the go. Now I'm fighting for this life, I can go below. Whatever happens in the dark, it'll start to glow. And I'm just trying to grab a break, let me catch my flow. I can feel, searching for a deal, on my last meal. Crack the seal, so much I can take, gotta take a kneel. Constant battle, got so many wounds, hope they start to heal. It's getting real, it's getting real, yeah. Seems like I'm a crab in the bucket. It'll take a while before I catch one buffer, uh. Feeling like I'm living robotic. Once I get that chance, I'm a living iconic. Always catch me on my high, ain't gon' never see me low. High above the cloudy skies, yeah, I'm focused on this growth. Nothing up to involve, ain't gon' never see me fall. Yeah. Oh, my brother, get out soon, and this world is getting cold. Back when I was young, never thought I had the state of mind. Auntie told me, always keep my head and eyes on the prize. No surprise, always knew I wouldn't be them other guys. Parents taught me better, I was never caught up in the skies. Different folk, I was raised a little different, fully yoked. Like a sponge, I just seen a lot of life, fully soaked. On a swivel, looking both ways, cause I'm always woke. Gary Coleman even be excited like a different strokes. Takes a village, know that my family got me, we got the power. Every hour, paved the way, put in work, and they earned the flowers. Word is ours, 2020 vision, now we on a mission. The goal is I can bless them, put them in position. I can feel, searching for a deal, on my last meal. Crack the seal, so much I can take, gotta take a kneel. Constant battle, got so many wounds, hope they start to heal. It's getting real, it's getting real, yeah. Seems like I'm a crab in the bucket. It'll take a while before I catch one buffer. Uh, feeling like I'm living robotic. Once I get that chance, I'm a living icon.